0: I said before about there being different types of methodologies to create Delta-8. There's some really bad ones. Specifically, if you go and look at the patented process, the SOP that has a patent on it for Delta-8 production, it uses a lot of really horrible chemicals, but it also, from my perspective, doesn't create a very good D8. It's not stable. So whether or not you're just, and I hate, I don't want to sound judgy in any way, but if you're super granola, stay away from Delta-8. I mean, it's just, it's just like that, you know? because it's not air quotes here again natural but from my perspective it is completely natural because it isn't synthetic that's unnatural
1: you're listening to to be blunt the podcast for cannabis marketers where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. I feel like today's episode needs to start with a drum roll. So drum roll, please. We're talking about Delta 8. Yes. Delta-8 is not a new cannabinoid by any means. It's been around for a while, but in terms of its presence in the market, it certainly has come on very fast and very furious, which is why I figured it was time and appropriate to dedicate a conversation to understanding Delta-8. And so today's guest, Andrew Marlott, who is the GM of farm labs, which is a multi-state operating cannabis testing company, which means basically they see a lot of cannabinoids and terpenes and different profiles and compounds and they're testing it and they're researching it and trying to make sense of it for both the industry as well as obviously, you know, qualified products for consumer consumption. So like I said, Delta 8 came on Fast and Furious. It's a product that if you kind of look at it from the, you know, 30,000 view, it's everywhere. It's literally everywhere, but it has a lot of question marks around legality, which is why I find it so fascinating. And especially here in Texas, which is where Andrew is based, it's definitely a popular product, but I personally believe it's going to have a short-lived shelf life, which We kind of already knew with this cannabinoid, but I think what I'm really eager to dive into this conversation with Andrew on is really around not only what is Delta 8, but what are some of the other cannabinoids that are coming to market in and really from a consumer perspective, how do these cannabinoids fit with our bodies and with these desired outcomes that we're turning to cannabis for? So I don't want to steal the thunder from Andrew. I do know a significant amount about Delta-8 just by being in the industry. But again, kind of some of the murmurs about Delta-8 are Delta eight is not Delta eight, meaning it's very inconsistent in the market. And so it's not to, you know, raise some red flags in and give you some concern, but you should have some red flags raised and there should be concern with any new cannabinoids Delta eight or others. So that's why I'm really glad to have Andrew here. I've heard him speak on Delta 8 before, so I know he's super knowledgeable and really just ready to you know, learn. I think that's, again, the best place that we can come from in this industry is just realizing that this plant has so many facets to it and our bodies are so unique. Everybody's body is going to respond differently to different cannabinoids, different terpenes, different consumption methods that it's really our best interest as marketers to try to understand this as best we can and to share that information out. So that's what Andrew's here to do today. I'm really excited to dive into that discussion with him. And so let's, let's just get right to it. Let's welcome Andrew to the show.
0: My name is Andrew Marlott. I'm the general manager at Farm Labs, Texas. I've been in the industry, uh, depending on how you want to add it up uh, from one aspect to the other, uh, about 12 years. You know, one of the first uh, things that I went into was I invented a THC and CBD detection kit with some partners. I've uh, decided to come back to Texas where I'm from and help with uh, the industry and see it evolve.
1: So let's start kind of from the beginning. What is Farm Labs?
0: We focus specifically on uh, everything that the farmer to the end formulator would need to know to inform their customers of the important information that everybody needs to know on their C of A from potency, heavy metals, residual solvents, the whole gambit. I myself have been in the industry for a number of years uh, and uh, have a pretty broad background uh, from every aspect from extraction, post-processing, formulation, and testing.
1: Thank you for the introduction. I want to highlight for the listeners the relevancy of this conversation in particular. What I was excited to talk to you about is obviously where we both live, which is the great state of Texas. I think this industry, before we started recording, we were kind of, you know, touching on the subject, but I of course wanted to save the juice for the listeners that is texas is such a new market and so on one hand you have cannabis is getting more and more acclaim kind of at a national level you are seeing more and more states go medicinal they're turning into recreation markets and so the excitement is there i think more consumers are familiar with cannabis than not certainly the picture of what a cannabis consumer is evolving but then you have on the other hand texas and texas is a beast all of it, in its own And we are proud of it, except sometimes it makes being in cannabis a little bit more challenging. And what I mean by that is late to the game you know we are slow to getting into cannabis um, full-on weed is not legal in our state and yet hemp is federally legal and state legal and it feels like the market is moving at such a rapid pace that sometimes it's hard for brands and marketers really to keep track of like like okay you mentioned CoA so certificate of analysis, Most people listening to the podcast should have some sort of understanding of what a COA is, the importance of it, etc. However, I think the integrity of COAs, I'm curious what your opinion is, is sometimes varying. I mean, I've heard, you know, inconsistencies when it comes to testing facilities, I've heard inconsistencies of testing facilities, both in the same state, I've heard of inconsistencies of testing facilities out of state. There's obviously different ways to test based on the type of cannabinoid. So, a big one that I would love to dive in with you is delta eight because I feel like it's the the big you know buzz of the industry right now. Yes, it is. But knowing that you know the COA, and again to kind of put the lens on Texas, if you are a retailer in the state of Texas, and knowing that if you do really anything touching the plant, you need to be working with a testing facility. But if you're a retailer and you want to sell products to an end consumer, you should get your products third-party tested. That is a part of our requirements by the state of Texas is to work with a testing facility like yourselves and make sure that our products are tested. But again, I find that the enforcement of testing is, is not really there. I find that consistency of testing is not really there and then now you get into these minor cannabinoids that are coming to market and it's just a whole crapshoot so I'm curious what your thoughts are to unpack that.
0: Well that's a large package to unpack so starting off with the C of A um, and we'll focus in on Texas specifically Uh, everybody needs to be DSHS compliant or dishes however you want to call them but that requires a Texas specific full panel. Uh, A lot of people think that they can send it off to Colorado or Wyoming or some, you know, faraway place and get it tested and that the the full panel that they got in that state, it covers Texas. It does not. Uh, There are specific rules for what is supposed to be tested for in Texas. Not just that, the way the cannabinoids, the total, since we are a total THC state, no matter how many people try to, you know, argue against that, um, we are a total THC state. Uh, We're not allowed to uh, modify the CBD uh, uh, THCA number. Okay. The acidic form of THC. So in a lot of states, uh, you'll get it tested there. They subtract 13 to 16% due to decarboxylation to give you total THC. We can't do that here. So you ended up getting it back to Texas. You, you get your C of A, it says you're compliant, you're below 0.3 total THC. You put it on your shelves, and then you're selling a hot product to your clients and, or to another business. And it's a regular issue to the question of, you know, minor cannabinoids, uh, we'll focus in on Delta-8. Um, there isn't a Delta-8, okay? There is there is a whole spectrum of Delta-8. It's like saying CBD distillate, right? CBD distillate can have just CBD in it. It could have a little THC. It can have a whole host of other minor cannabinoids, um, and there's varying degrees of quality, okay? Delta-8 is much the same from my bit of research that I've done, uh, there's about 13 to 15 different methodologies for the production of Delta-8. It is a uh, man-made cannabinoid for the most part um, in the sense that it is an isomerization of CBD uh, isolate, okay? It is not naturally occurring in any significant numbers in the plant, except for in uh, plant material that's been degraded, okay? Um, So that being said, it is of, depending on who you ask, completely legal or of dubious legality. I'm not going to really speak to that because I'm not really a lawyer, but I will say that my interpretation of the farm bill, uh, it's pretty clear that it's a hemp-derived cannabinoid. So it is legal. And on testing Delta, eight, testing methodologies vary between labs to such a varying degree and the SOPs that they follow that you really have to look at more than just, you know, did I get a C of A? What is the, margin of error that that lab is allowed to use. Some labs are 10 to 15%. At farm labs, uh, that, to remain ISO compliant, you need to be, be below 10%. You can't claim more than 10% other than quantifying a number. Uh, we're on average, let's just take THC, You know, most cannabinoids for the most part, we're at a three to 5% margin of error. Okay, that's very, very tight tolerances. Delta-8, it's it's usually about 5 to 6%, and that has to do with the irregularity within Delta-8 and its instability.
1: So legality aside from Delta-8 and knowing that we're highlighting this cannabinoid in particular because it is... Super buzzy. I know a lot of my listeners are in Texas. I know a lot of them are selling Delta 8, myself included. Also, I think for those of you who are dealing with Delta 8, you should expect a, a shelf life, meaning I don't think Delta 8 is going to be around forever. Despite the, again, legality that it kind of sits, I appreciate your, you know, perspective of how Texas kind of views it and you can kind of interpret the law based on, you know, what your interpretations are. I will also echo we are not lawyers. Nothing that we are saying is, is legal advice. This is more just, you know, two industry professionals who are shooting the shit, you know, about, a topic that is really prevalent in our industry. And really the intention is to help break it down for people to have jumping off points of further learning and discovery, because I think that with cannabis in general, what I've observed and I, I do try to have a lot of conversations as many conversations as my, my mind and brain will allow me to have, but it can be very overwhelming. So I can only imagine from a business perspective, like, I guess I'll kind of paint a picture for you. We're here in Austin, Texas, and I consider myself, again, someone who's of the industry. And so I'm familiar with CBG and CBN and all these other minor cannabinoids that have kind of come up as CBD has become popularized. But we in Texas we're not count depending on who you ask cuz i kind of thought that we were only counting delta 9 thc not total thc but that aside which we can get into in a little bit you know we don't have delta 9 that's kind of the big thing i think most people are like i like being high i can't be high legally in texas what are my alternatives and so you know i don't i don't know if delta 8 was something that i was aware of was even a product on the market that i could consume as a consumer, but let alone like a business like procure and put on my shelves. And so I'll continue to kind of like paint the story. Had a customer come into my shop, you know, early last year and asked me for Delta eight products. And I remember thinking, What the fuck is Delta 8? And where is this person being told about Delta 8? Because again, when I'm looking at my partners, nobody is manufacturing it. It wasn't a thing that you could have access to easily. And I'm asking this customer, you know, where did you hear about Delta 8? And he's like, Reddit. And, you know, it's kind of a one off, a onesie, twosie. Then maybe a week and a half later, somebody else asked me about Delta 8. And I'm like, what are these people asking me about Delta 8? Who's like, where are they getting Delta 8 from? What is this idea? Then you started seeing it pick up very rapidly, and then it turned into not just like I heard it on Reddit, but like, oh, my friend bought a cart from this company online, or oh, my friend is using Delta 8, or oh, I heard this or that about Delta 8 from this or that publication. And so you started seeing it go from kind of the underground to above ground. And I think at first in Texas, the observation was oh, these people just want to get high, they can't have legal Delta 9, so they're going to therefore go and get Delta 8, which may or may not be true, again, depending on where you sit in the spectrum of things, because I talk to a lot of farmers, and they're very purists, and they're like, it's not, you know, like you said, it's not naturally occurring in the plant in high quantities, so therefore, if it's kind of man-made or created, then it's not, you know, the integrity of the plant is not there. And so I I resonated with that. I totally hear them. I understand. But I'm, you know, two things. One, I'm a business owner and a consumer myself. And so I'm always trying to think of what is the consumer asking for? You know, they're the one who's going to want to try this for X, Y, or Z reason. And so at that moment, when I saw that Delta 8 was becoming so desired, I was like, well, I have to investigate this and get a better understanding myself. That led me then into, okay, well, now we're sourcing Delta 8 products, doing the best due diligence. I just had this conversation with a customer over Instagram the other day. She's like, how do you know? You know, which I really want to pick your brain on that. But again, try to answer it to the best of my ability. It's not consistent. And there are a bunch of different ways to derive it. And I try to do my best due diligence to ensure that the products that I'm putting on my shelves meet these standards, et cetera. Then, now that I've been selling it, Obviously, there's a lot of buzz, especially with the national vape ban. And Delta 8 is, is predominantly in vape cartridges. There's also the Texas smokable ban, which we're trying to navigate. And so again, with vape cartridges, that's something. So there's these external things that are kind of attacking Delta 8, aside from Delta 8 being attacked itself. And then I have the consumers who are providing me so much feedback. They're saying, oh, I actually consume a lot of Delta 9 and I like Delta 8 better. It makes me me feel buzzed without the anxiety or paranoia. I find that Delta 9 makes me too stoned, too buzzed, and Delta 8 is a much lighter, much more approachable high. I've even heard as far as people then going on extrapolating it out into, you know, now that we're exploring these different Delta THCs, Delta 8 is more of the to use you know marketing slang the sativa of a high and then apparently delta 10 which is a, another delta coming on the market potentially is more of the indica of the high and so now this picture for the consumer is really front and center for me as a marketer of in theory i envision a day where we all get dna tested and we know our genetics and we know the map of all the cannabinoids and terpenes. And we say, hey, I have this disposition in my family lineage or I have this ailment or I, I want to feel this way. What is the right blend for me? And I know that we start seeing ratio products mostly out of state because they are incorporating more of those, you know, delta nine cannabinoids, but um I do see it in Texas as well. You know, I, I do CBN to CBD ratioed products, Delta-8 to CBN ratioed products. And so jumping off of that point, it's like, I see consumers who like Delta-8 and it's a very confusing situation for us to be in.
0: As far as like the first question you asked there about the quality of Delta-8, that's very easy to answer. And, and this is the thing I tell all of my clients. The first and foremost thing you need to do beyond a C of A is ask for the chromatogram which is the, the readout from the equipment that did the analytical analysis. If the Delta 8 peak on the readout is not a clean peak, meaning it goes straight up and straight down or straight up, maybe a small plateau and straight down. It doesn't have any other peaks kind of branching off of it before it hits the bottom line again. It's not good Delta 8. Stay away from it. It may not be stable. It might break down. It might lose potency. It might turn into Delta 9. You know, UV damage, heat, uh, all sorts of reasons why Delta 8 can change, right? so the chromatogram is the first with especially minors like delta 9 delta 8 and delta 10 you really need to pull those uh, as part of the c of a if you're a business wanting to make sure that you're providing the best uh, product for your clients to the next question of you know why do people consume delta 8 delta 8 is a pretty interesting cannabinoid from a, a biological standpoint it affects both the cb1 and cb2 receptors it has a completely different effect when eaten as opposed to when baked i myself uh, find that I don't enjoy vaporization or, uh, smoking any Delta of any kind. Uh, I, it's not that it's unpleasant as much as it is. I don't feel anything. Now when I eat Delta 8, though, um, it has a very, very, very anti-anxiety like effect it, you know, from my, you know, not a doctor speaking from personal experience, it 100% calms me down. Right. Um, now uh, there are low-potency Delta-8 smokable products that I've tried that have other cannabinoids with them. And, you know, you get the entourage effect if you believe in that because of the terpenes and everything. That Those were really nice. But the second thing about Delta-8 is I really don't enjoy the flavor uh, just uh, for, from a smoking perspective.
1: It's just such a fascinating cannabinoid because the argument, I think, on one end is it's a THC. And so people who are looking for the Delta 9 effect, I'm going to use air quotes for those of you who are not watching this, which nobody should be because I don't put the video anywhere. So air quotes, it's, you know, it's a buzz, but then you do get into the effects and how this particular cannabinoid does interact with both receptors the anecdotal observation that you know you made i have had very similar effects as someone who has consumed high delta 9 thc it is a much more clear minded kind of buzz and high and so it's one of those things that People are mad almost at the exploitation. And I'm using that word very intentionally because I find that people feel like Delta 8 is an exploitation of this cannabinoid in the market. But again, I'm, as just like a marketer, I'm looking at my consumers and I'm like, look, you don't have to use Delta A. Like there's other things you could use, but you're choosing. Why do you choose to use it? And like they're offering up these testimonials of why their feelings are so strong for this cannabinoid. And it's just putting us in a really interesting position, I think as an industry, but most in particularly as a state, as we have, you know, again, the the attack on smokables is really really challenging for us because, you know, you kind of mentioned you don't like to smoke Delta 8. I love to vape. I love to smoke regrettably sometimes because it does have some bad, you know, effects just smoking in general. But again, not a doctor, but, you know, from the things that I've researched and observed, the bioavailability of smoking is much quicker than any other consumption method. And so you have this, consumption method that is really popular for getting the benefits of cannabis. But then you have this attack on this type of consumption because I get it. There's so much discrepancy from, I mean, again, just using Texas as an example, it's pretty wild. I know you know this, but for listeners, you know, maybe this is what you're seeing in your home state or your city but like you can buy cannabis in gas stations you can buy cannabis in chiropractic offices you can buy cannabis in smoke shops and cbd shops and the the reality is the integrity of the products might be really great and it also might not be really great and it doesn't matter really who's selling it So kind of on that vein, I was just in Florida for Champs. It was my first time going to Champs. For those of you who don't know what Champs is, it's a predominantly, you know, glassware smoke industry type show, but very big in the cannabis industry. And I didn't know what to expect. I honestly was going because as a brand, I like to remain educated and informed, which it did. It totally educated and informed me, but it also scared me because I think sometimes my mind goes through the thought process like, oh, this is a very real example. I had heard, I've seen people who are selling Delta 8 branded products, but it's like, you know, Laffy Taffy or Nerd's Ropes or Sour Patch Kids. And you're like, that's not a brand that would have cannabis associated to it legally. And so you're like, Who's buying these products? And so I show up to Champs and I'm like, whoa, this is not only who's buying, this is who's selling. And it was crazy because it was booth after booth after booth of Delta 8. And some people obviously looked credible. And some people looked like just, you know, wild whacking out. And I saw one company, they literally were advertising Delta eight nerds ropes. And I'm, I'm hopefully sharing this as like a cautionary tale for anybody who is dealing with Delta eight. Like you should absolutely do due diligence on the products that you're putting in your store one and two, putting in your own bodies. And this guy had approached me he sees me looking at the sign and he's like you want you like you want a sample you want to try it and he hands me a sample and it it literally looks like a nerd's rope and i'm playing a little you know dumb i'm like tell me more like how did you get nerds to like approve this and he's like oh it's easy you know we're literally going to costco buying nerd's ropes and then just dropping delta 8 onto it and so i think that's another thing that you know cannabis edibles in general there's obviously a black market coming out of california and other places, but I I pinpoint California because that's kind of the most notorious point of the black market. But you're seeing these products that are really well-branded. They look like name brand products. And then it's just people adding these cannabinoids onto it, repackaging it and selling it. And it's just really scary. And then one vendor we saw kind of did a wink and a nod, like, you know, it's actually Delta nine. But he had a little Delta 8 sticker that he's putting over it. And I'm just like in horror, like, who are you selling this to? And I'm going to be, you know, kind of a little out there and make generalizations, but a lot of smoke shops. And so you see where the dark side of the industry is corrupting the you know, potential quality side of the industry. And so I, I say all that because I kind of want your industry perspective, especially sitting in a testing position, you must test a ton of Delta eight. What is the, what is the quality that you're seeing? Like, is it more like, it's actually all pretty decent quality. There are some bad players, or is it like majority is like so inconsistent and not what is on the packaging?
0: The vast majority of our clients uh, labeled packaging claims are correct. There are people in R&D who are not, uh, but we're not a typical testing facility. Um, we're not the, you know, uh, um, uh, put every, whatever numbers you wanna see on the C of A kind of lab, okay? We're above and beyond compliant and above and beyond uh, ethical, okay? So the kind of clientele that we have, uh, that they don't really fall into the category of people that you're discussing. Now, having been in the big C cannabis industry as long as I have, um, you know, uh, Colorado had this issue for a very long time. People were buying name brand products and then spraying them down with uh, D9 and selling it. And I'm gonna tell you right now, uh, having seen what happened to the businesses that were involved in that, it wasn't just the manufacturers who got in trouble and who lost everything. So I, I would definitely recommend don't step on big corporations branding. It's a bad idea. Um, beyond that, uh, never, ever, 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 ever believe a C of A that you get from a vendor ever under any circumstance, get everything retested. If you don't get it retested, it's on you, you know, and if you're selling to the public and you're selling something that, like you said, a wink and a nod is actually Delta nine and they're selling it as Delta eight. Somebody's going to go to prison and, and that's, and and then you're going to get sued because you sold it. And I, I would stay away from that. Like, 20 foot pole. As far as industry business, you know, perspective, that's my perspective on that is test everything, trust no one.
1: It's a good philosophy because I think there's a lot of, you know, bright eyed, bushy tailed people who want to get into cannabis. They have, you know, good hearts and souls. They like myself, not that I'm not that person. I am that person, but I mean more in the sense of like sharing the same integrity of like, I really want consumers to have access to products that can help them. I, if Delta eight helps you, I want to make sure that you have access to quality, integrity products that meet that, you know, level of expectation. But then the reality is, and I just observe it with Delta eight. It's like, is it because the market's moving so fast? I've even heard stories of like, I know that the testing is evolving in the sense that you can obviously determine Delta eight versus Delta nine, but where I get tripped up sometimes is how it's created. So it's my understanding if it's created from hemp or CBD, that it is legal. And it's my understanding that if it is derived from Delta nine conversion, that it is illegal, but there's not really a standard way of deciphering how it's derived. And so it's very murky for brands are playing in this industry to like understand. And so I, again, have a field day sometimes because I go to these shows and I love playing dumb and asking people like, cool, you're selling Delta 8. Tell me more. How do you make it? You know, what's your process? Like, what do you do with it? And the people who already kind of at first take can't answer those questions. I'm like, I call bullshit on you, I'm not touching your products with a 20 foot pole. But you have kind of different filters of the conversation to ultimately try to get at like, can I trust this manufacturer? Can I trust this supplier? But it's still to me, for some reason, Delta 8 just seems so challenging for people to put its you know, thumb on. And I was talking to someone the other day and you kind of echoed the sentiment Delta eight is not Delta eight, meaning it's inconsistent and it's difficult to replicate the credibility of it.
0: Not always, not always. There are people out there that I know for a fact are making rock solid Delta eight that's stable and it's very expensive. Uh, So that's the thing that that you have to understand the Delta eight market. If your Delta eight isn't 99.9% pure Delta eight question what it is. Two, there's a lot of Delta-8 out there that it's like 97%. It's still good Delta-8, okay? You just need to look at the chromatogram. If you're seeing a bunch of weird minor cannabinoids on there or undefined peaks, stay away from it, okay? You brought up the question of whether or not Delta-8 from Delta-9 can be determined. You actually can Um, if you see, you know, uh, uh, certain other minor cannabinoids you can also tell that it was converted from delta 9 because it's part of that process okay there're two separate processes going from cbd to delta 8 and from delta 9 to delta 8 okay so you can't actually see that from a cost perspective most delta 9 that's turned into delta 8 is going to be 60% delta 8 it's going to be low potency because they're not making it from big c cannabis they're making it from the byproduct of making cbd isolate okay, okay. And there's nothing wrong with that Delta 9 that's left over other than the fact that it's illegal. <laughs> you know, it's it's perfectly valid from a cannabinoid standpoint, uh, but it should be destroyed under DEA guidelines. You know, that's what's supposed to happen to it. A lot of people are bypassing that and they're making Delta 8 out of it. Well, that's a crime and it's bad Delta 8. Okay, because the cannabinoids, by the time you've gotten to CBD isolate that are left behind in the mother liquor, which is what that's called, right, what's left over after isolate, are, they're beat up, they need to go in the garbage, you know, they're, they're, the, you, you, the processes are harsh enough making CBD isolate that, you know, whatever's left over, just, just recover your, your solvent and then throw the rest away. There are really good Delta eights, but you're not going to pay less than like, you know, $2,000 a liter.
1: What's your observation on Delta-8 in the marketplace? Do you observe, because especially from like a testing perspective, I mean, I think it's really exciting as the market continues to evolve, we are getting access to more, you know, minor cannabinoids that really do have therapeutic benefits for, you know, the end consumer. And so I'm curious, kind of like the two-part question would be one, where do you see Delta-8 sitting long-term, given that it is a natural part of the plant, maybe not in the state that we're consuming it as, but, you know, giving people access and exposure to that cannabinoid Two, then what other cannabinoids are you seeing emerging that are some stuff that, you know, we should maybe be paying attention to.
0: So Delta is, in my opinion, perfectly uh, legitimate. If you consume so much that you're intoxicated enough that people need to be worried, you go to sleep. Never met anybody that consumes enough Delta Eight that they become a driving hazard. You're not going to be able to drive. Okay, low low levels of Delta Eight, depending on your individual cannabinoid system, because we all have different tolerances. Low levels. Uh, I can do advanced math. I can I can think clearly. This is not an intoxicant that is anywhere close to what Delta Nine is. Do I think that it will be legal long term? I, I I don't know. I I don't know. I think that it has a very solid justifiable case for it being legal. Um, I think under the strictest interpretation of the law, it is probably legal. I think that the DEA is very uh, ready for it not to be. Um, and so we'll, we'll kind of see. I think that this discussion of Delta-8 and on to the further discussion of what you asked about, other minor cannabinoids that are coming on the market, Delta-10 uh, in this case, are going to push national legalization one way or the other. Um, I think it's it's it'll clarify everything when they, you know, remove the farm bill, uh, redefine the plant as a single plant because there is no hemp, there is no big kidney. It's cannabis sativa L, that's all there is, okay? And then we just define who has access based on age restrictions to, you know, what uh, THC level. I don't think anyone under the age of 21 should have access to Delta-8. I think that you know much like alcohol and every other thing that it's you know legal age consumed responsibly no problem from my perspective now to the other cannabinoids that are coming on the market delta 10 you you brought up something that uh i i've heard other people say this but from my own experience is very different delta 8 and delta 10 can't be compared to endocannabinoid sativa in any way from my experience um now my endocannabinoid system might be different than other people But um, I found Delta-10 to be far more euphoric um, and and less sedative. Delta-8 is far more sedative, so it's far more in that indica class, if you want to call it that, uh, when eaten. Uh, When smoked, uh, they're both very, very different. Um, So I don't think that Delta-8 or Delta-10 are best utilized as cannabinoids on their own. I think that, you know, Delta-8 specifically, uh, it allows for other cannabinoids to be picked up by the CB1 and CB2 when they're not normally. I think that, you know, making, like you said, uh, multi-cannabinoid products and terpene products that kind of exploit, you know, benefits of everything uh, are going to be best. Until someone figured out how to make Delta-10 without going linear from, you know, CBD, Delta-8, Delta-9, Delta-10, I would say that Delta-10 is definitely illegal. My understanding now is because I haven't done this, but the new process is to go from CBG to CBG and from CBG to Delta 10. And so they bypass Delta nine production entirely. Okay. And even Delta eight. Okay. So is that Delta 10 legal? I, from the law perspective, I think it is. And do I think that it has uses as well? 100%. I really do. Um, But all, all these, we'll call them psychoactive cannabinoids. Um, most of them are in the T block, you know, THCV, Delta eight, Delta 10, so on, Delta nine. They should be consumed responsibly. And that's that's really what it comes down to. But let's not fool ourselves and think that these are not psychoactive ingredients, but caffeine's a psychoactive ingredient as well. And far too much caffeine can do, you know, just as much damage or more, you know? So um, that's kind of the, the whole, in a nutshell,
1: Yeah, I think Delta 8 and 10 are really interesting just because of the lack of organically occurring in the plant abundance that they present. And so, obviously, there's kind of that attack on it's like a created substance versus it being like, oh, we grew the plant and it just produced this. Like, I find I have to have the conversation with customers all the time, you know. Yes, there's CBD, heavy flour, there's THC Delta 9 heavy flour. There's even CBG heavy flour. But if someone is selling you Delta 8 flour, that's flour that's not high in Delta 8. It is an after effect that is sprayed, infused, whatever you want to call it, incorporated into it after the fact. And so it's just um, interesting to even think of like how to get to Delta 10 because you would think that you wouldn't have to necessarily always go through converting it from like it makes sense linearly. Like when you said that, I was like, oh, that kind of makes sense. You know, eight to nine, nine to 10 or nine to eight, but like bypassing it and going through other cannabinoids, it's, um, it just shows the, the science side of these molecules.
0: Right. So the, the easiest way to think about it is CBG is the mother of all cannabinoids. CBN and CBG, depending on the cannabinoids, are the base unit that all the other hydrocarbon groups are added to to create the other cannabinoids. If you think of chemistry like Legos, Okay, because it really kind of is whether it's happening in the plant or it's happening outside of the plant doesn't matter to me. What matters to me are what chemicals are being used to create the processes. There are rock solid quality Delta 8s that exist that are using completely natural, for the most part, food safe ingredients to create the final product. You know, there was a, a few months back where everybody was talking on, you know, Reddit and Future 4200 and all these other sites Oh, delta is being bleached. That's because there are, you know, and I, my fingers are up in air quotes right now, bleaching agents being used, but those bleaching agents are also used to make your water clear and to, you know, these are perfectly safe from a, you know, and have years of uh, usage in other applications where you get exposed to far higher quantities than you are in Delta-8. So that that doesn't really bother me either. I said before about there being different types of methodologies to create Delta-8 there's some really bad ones. Specifically, if you go and look at the patented process, the SOP that has a patent on it for Delta 8 production, it uses a lot of really horrible chemicals, but it also, from my perspective, doesn't create a very good D8. It's not stable. So whether or not you're just, and I hate, I don't want to sound judgy in any way, but if you're super granola, stay away from Delta 8. I mean, it's just, it's just like that, you know, because it's not air quotes here again, Natural. But from my perspective, it is completely natural because it isn't synthetic. That's unnatural. It's a reordering of the Legos to create with the Legos being cannabinoids to create another cannabinoid. Um, now, does it occur in the plant very much? No, no, it doesn't. But the vast majority of the CBN you're buying isn't plant extracted. It's a conversion from CBD. The CBG, uh, which is coming up on the market right now, again, that comes from CBD and It's converted. You're not going to see very often, because I do know sources to get it, but CBG distillate that just comes from the plant. And it's going to be pretty low in CBG. Um, So, you know, now you asked before about uh, minor cannabinoids that I see that are going to be maybe, let's say, a big deal. Uh, THCP and CBDP are going to be a big deal. Now, uh, THCP, uh, I'm not 100% sure anyone has figured out how to... Uh, create that from CBD yet. But uh, I, I seriously doubt that'll ever be legal. Um, if what I've read is true, because I haven't actually tried th- uh, THCP, it's 40 times more psychoactive than Delta 9 in a in very similar vein. So, uh, you know, let's go one, you know, a five milligram gummy is now 40 times stronger uh, because it's THCP. I don't think that'll ever be legal. I don't think that they'll ever let that happen. Um, If that's the case, Uh, the, now there's all, there's really amazing things with CBDP that people are coming out in studies with now saying that it's exponentially more effective for neurological issues than traditional CBD is. So I'm convinced big pharma is going to snatch up, you know, that, and it's going to, there's going to be a patented uh, CBDP product that helps with, you know, neurological issues if it is as effective as they're saying. Earlier, you didn't also mention that it's a shame that no one has a genetic test. Uh, The interesting thing is, is uh, as of last year, there is a Canadian company that does that.
1: Yeah, I've heard of it like being thought about, but I haven't seen it actually like brought to the consumer market. So is this one actually like a consumer can?
0: I I believe it has to be under a doctor's order. And I believe it's only available to Canadian citizens currently, because of, you know, international legalities of, you know, are we telling you what cannabinoids are going to work best for you? And is that legal? So what I would say is, is that if, if what I heard is correct, 2024, they will have a mail-in service potentially. So if that happens, we can all actually get our, our endocannabinoid profile pulled and find out, Hey, this might cause a psychotic episode because you have an overactive endocannabinoid system. And everyone who's ever had one of those super bad experiences Your endocannabinoid system is overactive. Consume far less. I'm fairly certain that I have a, a greatly underactive endocannabinoid system because I can consume vast quantities and barely feel it.
1: It is exciting to figure out my philosophy is always trying to get the end consumer to have the best experience with cannabis as possible, knowing that just because I like high Delta 9... That doesn't mean that everybody wants high Delta nine and it is to get them comfortable enough to explore these different cannabinoids. But because there's just so much, like I'll throw another one at you that I'm really curious what your thoughts are. CBN, I've heard, again, it's funny because, you know, the source of truth, I think for a lot of these things, while they should be rooted in science and actual research, so much of this industry is very anecdotal. And so it's, I smoked this, or I ate this, and I felt this way, so therefore it must be X, Y, or Z. Mostly, this is sativa, or this is indica. So CBN is one that I've seen, and I've even communicated is more of a sedative, because that's what anecdotally we've experienced, that's what is kind of being educated. You guys can't see Andrew, but he is smiling wildly, because he's about to change my world up. But I was just reading an article the other day that was saying, you know... Basically that it was, most people think CBN is sedative, but it's actually not really sedative. But because of how it's derived coming from THC, that's where I guess the narrative is when you leave, let's say pot for too long and, you you know, in a bag and then you find it, it's not really, you know, it's the THC that's degraded. And that's kind of what turns into CBN, which is why CBN might be sedative, but actually CBN as a cannabinoid is not Super sedative, so it's just one of those things. Again, you see marketing: oh, this is a pro- you. You need help sleep, and you know, full spectrum didn't work for you. Why don't you try a CBN product? And now I'm like, wait, what are these cannabinoids?
0: Okay, so I, I, like I said before, I have a huge background in formulation, so actually making products and then selling those to companies who want who produce them and sell them. Okay, so CBN is in low quantities with high quantities of CBD. And the uh, addition of certain terpenes or other ethnogens, meaning plants-based medicine, uh, is actually extremely sedative. It can be very beneficial in sleep. It's very calming. Um, however, uh, CBN in large quantities, because I've seen some of these CBN tinctures now being like 3,000 milligrams. Um, yeah, you're not going to sleep after that. Uh, it's what I would say that from my experience, what I can equate it to is if you've ever taken too much NyQuil. mm mm-hmm. And you absolutely cannot sleep.
1: Kind of messes you. You're like in a weird trip zone.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's very much like that. So a small amount, absolutely very uh, helpful with sleep, but not on its own and uh, definitely not in large quantities. So more is not more in this case. Uh, more is the exact opposite of what you want. And f- from my experience, not really a good time. Um, so, uh, CBN is definitely uh, something I. I think again, it has uses. People need to understand what they're consuming, and understand their tolerances. So, you know, I always tell everybody start low and slow. I know that's kind of everybody's go-to, but that even that's even for that's pretty much everything but CBD because you know I've consumed three thousand milligrams at one time of CBD, and I didn't feel anything. I felt other than about an hour later, I felt uh, I had no pain you know, um, no inflammation. And that was a, other than that, I I felt no intoxication. Now being my favorite, uh, Guinea pig slash lab rat is myself. THCV is another interesting one. If you want to talk about that,
1: I've heard about that a lot coming up.
0: THCV will absolutely turn your appetite off in in small doses. Um, it will, uh, give you, uh, energy, um, It will also, in conjunction with other cannabinoids and terpenes, uh, trigger the, you know, old school super sativa freak out. You know, the, you know, the cops are after me, uh, you know, hide under the bed kind of freak out. Super paranoia. Um, And so, uh, again, used in moderation. Or if you're someone like myself who happens to find super sativas to be my favorite, uh, you know, If we want to use that term because i'd love to talk about sativa and indica because those don't mean what you think they mean oh
1: let's crack it open okay
0: okay so i can name several strains that everyone say are are sativas okay pretty much all of the uh, new york cheese uh you know all of those they're the exact opposite of what people think they are uh indica and sativa are linnaean terms linnaeus was a gentleman who gave us all of our botanical names for things, okay? If everybody remembers studying about peas and genetics in school, that was Linnaeus. Um, so if we look at the um, Linnaean descriptions of indica and sativa, you have whether or not it's essentially tall and skinny with narrow leaves or broad leaves, or short and fat with narrow leaves or broad leaves, and then we have, uh, you know, ruderalis, which is, uh, you know, because that's the third known uh, type of, you know, cannabis sativa L that people have identified. And ruderalis is um, specifically, it's from the the, the Latin for rubble. Uh, it is a strain that it, most people refer to now as autoflower. Um, it grows short and squat and will flower anywhere and doesn't care about tilled soil. It, you know, it comes out of the Russian steppes. It's very hardy from cold, all that good stuff. Now, Indica and Sativa land races are another terms that people like to throw around, and the land races really don't exist except for in isolated bubbles, like you know the Indus Valley region or the Hindu Kush mountains, where the pollen from other cannabis plants can't reach those areas. You can have a landrace strain. In Denver, Colorado, you do not have landrace strains. You have hybrids. They're all hybrids. there, there is no such thing as a, a landrace strain. And most of the land race strains due to human interaction, uh, especially global travel, have been contaminated. Lamb's breath out of uh, Jamaica, good example. Uh, you can't get real lamb's breath that, that existed 45, 50 years ago. It doesn't exist anymore. And everybody says, oh, I got this cut and it's the best. And da, 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 da. And I'm like, nope, 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 nope. Unless you have somebody who is a obsessively dedicated grower, which I know a few in Colorado who have been growing. I know a gentleman in Colorado who grows nothing but Durban poison. And he's been growing, he calls it Durban poison, but really what it is, if you follow the time back, it's Durban. It's a pure Durban. It's a pure Sub-Saharan African strain that he's been growing that one strain forever. You don't go into his grow unless you change into a Tyvek suit and leave all your clothes behind. You don't, you don't wear your shoes in there. He has, uh, you know, you step in bleach baths, you know, he's killing all the pollen before you go into that space because if he ever gets contaminated, his mother gets crossed, you know, it's done, right? That is the most stimulating strain I've ever smoked in my life. One of the most amazingly unique experiences outside of Frisian duck. Uh, Frisian duck was another one of those that it's, it's a plant that doesn't have a palmate leaf. It doesn't have the five points to the leaf. It has usually three and they usually are a little curly. It doesn't even look like a cannabis plant until it starts to bud. That was, again, that is a unique thing. It is the unicorn that exists, right? But for the most part, my, my interpretations of strains is outside of, you know, how do I feel when I smell it? How does it, you know, how does it make me feel when I look at it? They're all the same thing for the most part. It's cannabis sativa L. And there are unique outliers. Pink sands, great, great strain. Phenomenal. Do I think it's an indica or a sativa? No, it's a hybrid. They're all hybrids, so they might have subtle differences. But genetically, the studies that were done in like 2016 and 2018 on what it actually makes an indica or what makes a sativa genetically—not most, but I would—I think the study said 10 to 30 percent of all strains are mislabeled genetically not even by the name, we're saying just indica or sativa, they're completely mislabeled. Because people go by the appearance, or they're going by the effect. And neither one of those holds true in every case.
1: Well, it's very inconsistent.
0: Yes. Well, because they're all hybrids. Right. It's a genetic soup, right? It hasn't had 200, 300, a thousand years of isolation to becoming... Right. Thing.
1: Isolation is key. It's like the purity of it. And I think most people don't realize that spectrum, which is so fascinating. Thank you for that. By the way, that history lesson was very, very important. And I think for marketers, it's again, kind of the the thought process I was just about to share is like, when I was just a cannabis consumer, oh, I, you know, you hear of certain strains, Pineapple Express, Blue Dream, you think, oh, when I smoke that and it says it's this way, I felt that way. Okay. Sure. I could kind of start to see it, but then you kind of get into the industry side and like all the thoughts that I ever thought I knew about cannabis were just completely eradicated because one, the genetics to where you're growing it, who the cultivar is indoor versus outdoor contamination or not water geography, like the list goes on and on that You know, I hate to be that marketer in the room who's like, it's marketing, (laughs) but it's marketing and it's taken off pretty, pretty well. Unfortunately, it's uh, I have people who ask me sometimes, you know, what's your favorite strain? And I'm like, I don't I don't even know if I can accurately answer that because the inconsistencies I've, you know, using, let's say, Pineapple Express, Pineapple Express from, you know, maybe my favorite shop in denver is going to be a different experience than my favorite shop in colorado springs or if that strain shows up in california and so yep. these names have become synonymous with these effects these experiences this you know prolification it's like oh it's, you know everybody loves Bubba kush Bubba kush this Bubba kush that but then it's like i don't know if i've ever had a consistent experience smoking Bubba kush
0: Being in the cannabis industry, as long as I have, uh, I actually know uh, the gentleman who came up with, you know, 97 Bubba Kush. Yeah. And um, had this conversation with him. And he said, there is no real Bubba Kush unless I taught you to grow it and you're buying the nutrients for me and I set your grow up. Okay. Because uh, if you don't have that level of control where nutrients, water, temperature, uh, elevation, literally everything, he says it's not Bubba Kush.
1: I I believe it. But that's where then you see this like confrontation of the industry. Again, I think the consumers, what I find is so exciting, but also the very real challenge of our industry is consumers are pushing the market forward while we're still navigating the industry. Sometimes I equate it to like, you know, that you're driving the ship and you're also like plugging up the holes. It's like, wait, I didn't even know that was like a thing until you see it kind of out in the market and... I know other industries deal with this, but obviously given cannabis's notoriety and just position being a drug, a scheduled drug, it's like, how do you start to... Attack is not the right word, but how do you start to attribute all the variabilities? So I did an episode with um, the SVP of marketing at Leafly, which plug for you guys, go listen to that past episode. But Leafly to me has just been a brand obviously for most people for their exploration. Hey, you know, I want to understand more about, let's say, Bubba Kush or, or Durban Sour, what does this guide say essentially to me? And she was sharing some of the evolution of that, especially with the broadening of the industry. Now you have all these variations, and they're trying to categorize and document all of them because because it isn't consistent. It's not you know unless it's like you said the same cultivar under the same settings under the same circumstances. It just creates so much variability. But she was also cluing in. The exciting part is especially getting into these minor cannabinoids, I think it gives growers opportunities to make more unique products or more unique grows. It's a cool position to be in, but it's also, again, literally rewriting a lot of the I don't want to say rules or playbook for the industry. But again, I think when you're a marketer and you're like, how do I talk about these things? There's like stuff that you just believe because over time, it's like kind of like the folklore and the culture of cannabis. But now that it's coming out into the light, you are seeing, oh, well, actually we do have better research now and we do have better understanding. And now it's just so much broader than we thought. So I just think it's good food for thought for marketers who are dabbling in the industry that, you know, kind of question everything, get everything double, triple tested and, you know, just stay curious because there's so much to uncover still.
0: Totally agree. It's everybody forgets about the Venn diagram of, of cultivation, right? So it's, it's the Tawar, it's the overall location and how it was developed. And, you know, then it's, uh, individual genetics of the plant right and then it's the interaction of the grower right how how well they took care of it what their approaches are and, and how they do it i think that's far more important the growers interaction and the terroir over genetics and especially if the genetics come into play once they've established themselves at you know four five six ten generations in that situation and setting right and Southern California, they've really started to focus on that, on, you know, cannabis, uh, the towar. And I actually know hemp companies now uh, that are starting to really push that, right? Like, so smokable hemp products that they're like, no, this was grown in Maine. It was grown under these conditions. It's like, you know, so many generations old. One of my favorite hemp strains comes from specifically Maine. I've given the seeds, I've given the genetics to other people and they can't grow what they grow up there right so it's finding what works in your environment and finding what works under the conditions you want to grow it but you know uh, personal opinion is outdoor and soil is king um, always Uh, i know everybody thinks that indoor is better i think indoor has a better preserved turf profile Um, but from a overall effect standpoint i think that um, nature has it best and always will
1: Wow, 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 we got into it, man. That was a good conversation. Thank you, Andrew, for imparting us with all your cannabis cannabinoid wisdom. You know, I just think there's just so much to learn about this plant, as I often share on this show, and the science behind the cannabinoids, especially as new minor cannabinoids hit the market. How do you make sense of it as a marketer? You know, what are consumers asking for? There's just so many layers to dissect, and I always try to stand in a position of gaining perspective. So I hope that you learn something new, whether you're you know in Texas or not, whether you sell or want to sell Delta 8 or Delta 10 or CBN or CBG, etc., or not. Again, I think there's always something to learn. And so that is the philosophy of this show is just to stay curious and to, you know, learn and share that learnings with others. So with that said, this episode is donezo for the day. I do have a ton of other great episodes. If this is your first time listening, thank you so much if you've made it all the way to the end credits, then you get a gold star. DM me on Instagram and I'll reward you with something that I will come up with. Um but I encourage you to go check out other episodes. My guests come from all aspects of the industry. They're all, you know, intelligent and brilliant and strategic in their own regards and have added so much value to this industry that I'm just really grateful that we are able to capture their stories for the podcast. So yeah, we, we are done. This is all I've got to share today. But I will say, if you found value with this episode, the best thing that you could do that will really help me and will really help this industry is to share what you learn. You don't even have to share this episode. I mean, if you share this episode, I would really appreciate it because I do find that super valuable for helping spread the word and spread the knowledge. But if you found a new piece of information or you thought of a new idea, just sharing the knowledge, spreading that around. That is how this industry is going to continue to grow, how it's going to continue to evolve and is really, you know, what truly warms my heart at the end of all of this. So thanks again. This is Shada Tarabi. I'm signing out and I will see you guys next Monday for another brand new episode of the To Be Blunt podcast. Stay safe out there, y'all. Bye. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit slash to be blunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshaidatarabi.